Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Hatfield, if you can please, and guests, if you can open up, if you have a Bible with you, to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, chapter 5. So Matthew 5, verse 10. And as you do that, we are finishing up a series, if you're new with us today, it's the very last one, and then we kick off something new next week, that we are calling Blessed Beyond Measure. Because in this season, let's say end of December, beginning of January, it's a time where most people are concerned with blessing. Am I counting my blessings? Am I setting myself up in a new year to be blessed? And, uh, you know, almost everything is revolving around it. I've been telling the church that in this season, these two months, the hashtag blessed is the most used hashtag on social media. On Instagram alone, you have 139 million people saying, man, this is the blessed life. And on Instagram, of course, we know that most of that is reflected in bodies and homes and holidays. And so it raises the question, what is blessing? What is true blessing? What is the blessed life? And to answer that question, we've decided to go to what we believe is the person who understands all of us here today the best. Because I believe God has not only made us, but He also stepped into our human experience 2,000 years ago. And when He speaks about true blessing, I want to listen. And so when He preaches His most famous sermon, probably the most famous oratory expression in the history of mankind, the Sermon on the Mount, He kicks it off with these statements of blessing. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. And it's often called the Beatitudes, this Latin word, Beatus, which means happy or blessing. So we could easily call this the blessed ones, the happy ones, who are truly happy and blessed. Is it financial? Is it relational? Is it spiritual? Is it material? Where do we find true blessing. And today we finish off with the last statement, and it's found in Matthew 5, verse 10. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Now, who will agree that that's not where we thought this would end, right? Even if you're not a Christian, you can appreciate as you read through these Beatitudes, man, it's poetic, it's beautiful, it almost takes you in. Blessed are the, the meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the humble. And then Jesus, I, it almost feels like he completely messes up the ending, isn't it? Like he had this moment to drive it home, something beautiful, and then he goes to this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for their faith. And you're like, ugh, that's like, that's not how to stick the landing. It almost seems emotionally, isn't it? 
It almost feels like if you're in the market for a car and you go to the sales light and, you know, this, this, this salesman, he's, he's got you in the palm of his hand and you get into the car for the test drive. And as you leave the sales light, he gets into his, you know, he's repeated this thing a million times and he says to you, sir, can I just tell you, three hours in this car and you will need physical therapy just to get your back straight again. Can I just tell you, sir, that, you know, the repairs on this car alone can put your kids through university, the cost on that. So can I tell you, as you are interested, that as you drive down the road, the heads will be turning because people will be laughing at you as you drive in this car. Now, no one would do that, right? Some of you are feeling guilty because you're like, that's the car that I drove with this morning. I'm still sitting with it and we will pray for you afterwards. But we're feeling like that's a bad sales pitch. No one would buy a car like that, isn't it? So if Jesus is pitching us the kingdom this morning, you're like, wow, that's a bad sales pitch. Like, blessed are the persecuted. Who would take that offer? And I guess the answer is no one. So maybe the answer is that this is not a sales pitch. Here's what you can do to earn the kingdom. Here's what you have to do to find God and blessing. Maybe Jesus is doing something else. Maybe he's sketching just a realistic picture for those that are pursuing Jesus, following him, of what the Christian life often looks like. And maybe he's saying also in that, that I want to bring comfort and hope to those who feel extremely discouraged at times because life often is just not fair. Maybe that's what he's doing. And so I want us to look just really quickly at these two parts of what he's saying. In Jesus and his realistic picture of what it means to be part of God's kingdom, he's got these two key words. And the first is this, persecution. When did you use that word, like, in just in a braai, like, recently? Probably, like, with the Lions tour last year. You felt like, man, there was persecution for our poor coach, Rasi Erasmus. Or maybe it was different. But it's not a word that we use very often. And yet, here it says, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. So persecution simply means that you receive ill treatment or you receive a bit of a shunning or punishment for either your race or your religious views, your political views. And the idea is to basically stop you in your tracks. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't speaking about politics or race. He was saying that this is the normal expectancy of people that follow me in faith. That's just the normal part of what it looks like. And maybe you sit here and you say, okay, oh, this is like so irrelevant to my life at this moment. Joe, I get it. In the first and second century, maybe, like just after Jesus, yes, people got sewn up in animal skins and thrown into like the lion's den. And you had people, you know, put on stakes and burned alive and all these horrific things we read about in the, in the books of history. But this is 2022. Like seriously, no one in South Africa is getting persecuted for their faith. And this is just not a reality. It has no relevance to me. But I want to maybe just slightly disagree with you this morning for two reasons. The first is the global picture. So there's an organization, there are many like them, but these, this is the most prominent one, and it's called Open Doors. And they have been, since 1992, they've been tracking what they would call severe persecution. So this is death, torture, kidnapping, blowing up or burning down of churches, people being thrown out of their homes and being taken, you know, all of their possessions removed from them. So they've been tracking this over the last many years, and every year they have a watch list of the 50 most difficult countries to be a Christian. And in this, in this year, it includes in the top 10 countries like Afghanistan and North Korea and Somalia and Nigeria, Pakistan, India. But listen to what they say. We say, you know, all this stuff is something of the past. That doesn't happen today, but listen to this. In their 2022 report, looking at last year, 
They say overall, 360 million Christians live in nations with high levels of persecution or discrimination. That's one in every seven Christians worldwide, including one in every five believers in Africa, one or two in every five in Asia, and one out of every 15 in Latin America. And they say this last year, 2021, for the first time in 29 years of tracking this, they have an 84-question matrix they use in all these countries. For the first time in 20 years, all 50, the top 50 nations, scored high enough to register very high levels of persecution. Death, torture, kidnapping, blowing up, burning down churches, being robbed of your property and ostracized. This is not happening many, many years ago, something of the past it's not slowing down. In fact, it's speeding up in many parts of our world. It's very relevant. But the second reason I think it is relevant to all of us is because of the clash that we find between what I believe is Jesus and His truth and His grace and what His kingdom is aiming to do in this world for good and the reality of what the enemy and death and sin and the world and its ways of doing those things inevitably will come to loggerheads. And there was a guy in the early church called the Apostle Paul, radically changed, a very deeply religious man, and then radically changed by Jesus. And he was beaten for his faith. He was shipwrecked. He was thrown in jail. He got ostracized from his family. He's a guy who knows firsthand what it means, the costly implication at times of being a Jesus follower. And he says this very boldly, 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. You know what you call that? A sweeping statement. <laughs> That's bold. He says all. And you've heard that joke preachers make. You know what all means in the Greek? It means all. All of us. He says every single person who wants to follow Jesus will be persecuted. How can he make a statement like that? I think it's only if you are fully convinced that if I say Jesus in response to your grace and your love and your truth coming to pull me out of a self-centered worship style of, of just living for me and living for self, out of pain and brokenness and death, you came and rescued me. And as a response, I want to follow you with passion. I want to follow you with everything. He says, if that is your heart, there will inevitably come a time where you experience opposition of some sort. What that opposition looks like, man, that's, it's like a million and one flavors of that, but he says it's inevitable it will happen. Let me give you one example of that. There's a phenomenon in our modern world that we call cancel culture. So in the secular world, this is happening all the time. Someone holds to a, a position or some kind of value, or they say something that doesn't really fit with what people think is acceptable anymore, and what happens? In a school, in a university context, in a business, in government, you get canceled. Your voice is silenced. You lose your job. Very often, even your income generating capacity is taken away from you. Your voice is silent. Even your presence is just shunned in certain places because you hold to things that people feel, no, we don't believe this anymore. We don't say this kind of thing anymore. This is where everyone's going. If you're going that way, you are canceled. And guess what? This is happening, especially in the Western world, all the time with Christians, because Christians at times will say, but I hold to certain Christian beliefs. I, I wish it was as simple as I just made all of this up. And this is just this grand hoax of the last 2,000 years. But I actually believe that this Jesus is who he says he is. 
I'm not making it up as I go. I'm believing in what he says. And over and over again, professors at universities, kids in certain schools, certain spaces of government and business, because they hold to certain views, you are canceled. You're ostracized. You're made an example of. Paul says, every person, if I want to follow Jesus, at times it's going to lead me right up against the grain of culture. So I think this is very relevant. Number one, because millions of brothers and sisters in the faith in our global village are facing severe persecution today. And secondly, if you want to follow Jesus passionately in your work, in your play, in your family, in your parenting, even in this city or in our country, it's inevitable that you will run into some sort of opposition. Blessed are the persecuted, Jesus says. Okay, so let's, let's continue on with the sales pitch. Maybe it gets better as we go. So that's the first word. The second one is this very churchy word. Once again, we never use this in our modern language. He says, blessed are what? Those who are persecuted for righteousness. Righteousness. Maybe you just think, yeah, the church, the self-righteous, the people who see themselves as righteous, who look down upon everyone with their so-called righteousness. What does this mean? Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Do you catch that? He's saying, guess what, friends? Jesus is not promising that every struggle that I experience in my life has some sort of a blessing inherent in it. Because very often, this is my story. Oh, yes. Over so many years, things that I would say, man, I'm struggling, I'm suffering, I'm experiencing some kind of pushback. And it's not because I am representing Christ. It's because of immaturity and making really poor choices. Can we just say amen to that just really quickly? I'll raise my hand, but you don't have to do that. Because I know you guys, you never make bad choices. I know you guys are just stand out. But do we agree that there are moments when because of immaturity, I'm not willing to bring this part of my Christian life to Jesus yet. This part of my character, maybe my sexuality or my finances, my work, my view about racism, or whatever it is, I keep it to myself. And because of that, I make really poor choices at times, and it leads me right into places of discomfort and hurt. Guess what, friends? That's not persecution. That's just the reality of maturing in my faith. So it's not persecution when you are socially getting rejected in your work because you're gossiping. That's not persecution. It's not persecution when I'm immaturely bashing people with opinions they never asked for. That's not persecution. And it's not persecution when all of my professional or romantic relationships go south very quickly, and the answer is always, it's their fault. That's not persecution. That, at times, is the result of immature and bad choices. So Jesus says, I'm not speaking about that. I'm speaking about righteousness. In fact, righteousness is like this golden thread that goes all through these Beatitudes. Two sets of four. After the first four, it says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And at the end of these four, we get to this one. Those who are persecuted for righteousness. So it must be a big deal, this righteousness thing. But what is it then? What is righteousness? And just to give you the thumbnail version, if you go through the Bible, I believe you'll get to the conclusion that righteousness is like two sides of the same coin. It's right standing before God, and it's right living before God. Righteousness is right standing before God, and it's right living before God. 
That's what we see all throughout the Bible. But how do we get that? How does that work? This is the part of the sermon we're all expecting me to say, because you guys suck at righteousness, isn't it? That's why you're at church this morning, because you guys suck at righteousness so badly. And if I can make you feel so guilty this morning, you are going to have a much better try tomorrow morning, isn't it? You bunch of unrighteous, self-righteous Like, that's often how preaching is, isn't it? Man, you suck as a Christian if you just tried harder. But that's not what the Bible says. And that's not what the Beatitudes are saying either. It's not a list of rules or regulations or a standard that you need to meet so that you would be blessed. No, we see once again in this final Beatitude, the Beatitudes are saying to us, this is not the measure of what you need to reach so that God would bring you into a place of relationship and His kingdom. Because then Jesus would be saying, you, if you don't know Jesus, Go and seek out as much torture and imprisonment as you can. You'll be blessed. That's not what he's saying. And he's also not saying to Christians, if you have your faith in Christ, this is the standard you need to meet to be truly great in the faith. Because once again, then he would say, unless you are suffering 24-7, you're not a good Christian. That's obviously not what he's saying. So what is this righteousness that the Bible espouses? If it's not something that I earn, through gritted teeth, I come to church, I serve, I give, I try and be a good person, I, I give of my time to charity, I give some of my money away, I try to balance out the scales of my life. I walk around with this guilt and this hopelessness that I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm a good person, if I'm accepted, if I'm loved, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there. If I can just achieve this righteousness, that's not what the Bible says. Let me give you two passages just to help you with this. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Here again, Paul writes, as a man who knew the Jewish scriptures back to front, who served God in a way that he felt, man, you cannot do it more perfect than I did it. And yet later in his life, he comes to this conclusion. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says of Jesus that God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. My failure, my brokenness, my addiction to pornography, my realities of, of hiding my, my tax returns and trying to, to build my business in unethical ways, my unfaithfulness in my marriage, the things that have been done to me, the things that I experience shame of, the hurt, the pain, the lostness, the guilt, the brokenness. Jesus says, I don't come and tell you how condemned you are. I come to take those things upon myself. Here's a God who doesn't come with sword in hand when it comes to sin. He comes with nails in hand and says, I will deal with this myself. And he becomes our sin. Why? So that you can try hard and be a good person and go to church and, and just, you know, get yourself up on the leg of Christian faith. No, he says he does that so that in him, putting my faith in what he has done, not what I can do for him, but his finished work. He says, if I put my faith in the finished work of Christ on my behalf, it says, we become the righteousness of God. I receive a sonship, a status, a standing before the Father that is unchallengeable and immovable. It's not a roller coaster of righteousness that I ride. The day that I put my faith in Christ, for the rest of existence, when the Father looks at me, he sees Jesus. He sees the perfect victory and faithfulness, the perfect grace and truth of Jesus. It's not what I have done. It's what He has done. 
It's not what I can achieve. It's receiving the perfect love of Jesus on the cross. When he said it is finished at the end of the book of John, he meant it. He said, you don't achieve this. You receive it in faith. It's not the condemnation of God that leads people to repentance. It's the kindness of God, the Bible says. It's the grace of God. When the Father sees me fully as I am, man, I will not even tell my wife some of these things. But the Father sees the fullness of who I am, and yet He says, in Jesus, I accept you, I love you, I redeem you, I forgive you. You have a calling that you don't even fully understand. Not just relationship with me, but representing me in this life. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. You are my creation. You are my new creation. You are the one that I've chosen because of you. No, because of Jesus. It's the grace of God. And then you think, okay, but you know, I get some of that. But I'm sure that the moment that I put my faith in Christ and maybe I experience that new birth, then the race starts. Man, then you better roll up your sleeves, guys. For the next, you know, 100 years of Sunday services and community groups, we're going to tell you how you need to sweat now. That you can grow and be better. Come on. Isn't it? That's how we think. It's it's grace and then it's work. Man, you better work. You better graft. You better grow. Otherwise, God is going to be so disappointed in you. Yes, you'll go like to heaven, but you're going to be sitting in the corner because you're one of the bad children of God. That's how we think. And yet, once again, listen, this is a scripture you have to have somewhere on your phone, in your heart, <laughs> tattooed on your arm. Titus 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Who's that? Jesus. Bringing salvation to all people. Yes, it's the grace of God that saves us. But now listen to this even further. That same grace instructs us to deny godliness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age? Is it, the, is it the guilting and the condemnation of God that gets Christians to mature and become more solid in their faith? No. That keeps you ineffective and helpless. It's the grace of God that leads us to places of maturity and greater understanding and freedom. You can have the cell door of your life opened up and for the next 50 years sit solidly in it. But he says, no, it's not just the grace that opens it up. It's the grace that allows you to take every step thereafter. Friends, it is the depth of my understanding of God's costly grace in Jesus that will raise me to new levels of faithfulness and hope and joy. It's the grace of God. Righteousness is not something you achieve. It's what you receive through the grace of God on a cross for you. That's righteousness. So I want to just make this practical for us. What's an application that you can walk away with today? And I have it in one sentence for us, and I'm just going to touch upon it really quickly. It's the following, then. If that's true, man, if it's not the self-righteous that attain relationship and kingdom, but it's those that are willing to say, I have come to the end of myself. I have everything I've ever wanted or nothing I've ever wanted. And yet I realize that I'm empty and lost without God. If those are the ones that receive this righteousness, what do we do then? And I want to say this. Reject passivity by leaning into Jesus and looking forward. 
Reject passivity by leaning into Jesus and looking forward. Reject passivity. Jesus says in verse 11, you are blessed when they insult you. There it is again. Like, Jesus, what kind of blessing is this? You are blessed when they insult you and they persecute you and they falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. That's rough. So Jesus goes from very general persecution, verse 10, and then he makes it so personal. When you are insulted, it's in your face. It's personal. Why does he do that? Especially for us. Can I just say that? In South Africa in 2022, your chances of getting burned at the stake for Christianity, it's pretty low, guys. Pretty low. You can walk with your Bible today out of the church, and you don't have to fear for your life. The reason Jesus makes it so personal is because there is another form of persecution that I think the enemy orchestrates in people's lives that is much more subtle and yet much more deadly. Why? Because you get this kind of, you know, extraordinary persecution, death, torture, imprisonment, and that is out in the open. It's in your face, and it's meant to put you down. But then I believe the enemy wants to orchestrate very often in our lives a much more devious and subtle and secretive kind of persecution. And the heart behind that persecution is not to kill you. It's there to make you immature. It's there to make you ineffective. It's there to make you passive. Because the argument from the enemy goes like this. Why would I try and take you out of the world if I can just make you exactly like the world? That's a much more attainable goal. Have you ever read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? He has this fictional interaction between a senior demon and a younger demon teaching him the ways of how, you know, we try and, and get them twisted and off the path. That's his argument. He says, you want to try and kill a Christian? That's heavy-duty levers we need to pull you, guys. We're going to have to get all the resources together. The much easier thing, make them ineffective, passive, bored, and immature, and keep them like that. That's what he wants to do. And you know what that looks like for most of us, most of the time? It's just cultural conformity. When I'm just conforming to the culture, the enemy is like, great, victory. This Christian, for the next many decades of their life, will just spin their wheels and chase their tail. No longer have to worry about that one. Why? Because now, when it comes to my sexuality, when it comes to the way I spend my money, when it comes to how I think about business and success, when I think about whether I should stay in this country or go, how I think about politics, how I raise my kids, all of these things, what's important in life my basic view is to say that as long as it basically conforms to what the people in Pretoria think, that is great, that's helpful, that's winning, I'm happy. And I lose the heart to say, but is it not about what he wants? And therefore, eventually, my sexuality looks exactly like my neighbor who doesn't yet know Jesus. My financial statements, you could not differentiate between that and the person next to me who doesn't yet know Jesus. The way I do business week to week, you could not differentiate that between where I am now and the person who doesn't yet know Jesus. Let me give you an example from our own life. I became a Christian at the age of 18, and for the next especially first couple of months, man, I was holding on to my old sexual ethic with absolute white-knuckle grip. <laughs> I was saying, Jesus, you have changed my life, but the way I do sexuality, I'm just going to keep hold of that for now. So whether it was girls or pornography or whatever it was, man, I was still going to stick to my guns. But you know what was the result of that? I had zero inner confidence to speak about the goodness of Jesus. 
every time I would mess up, I would feel so guilty. I would feel like I can't speak about this. Why? Because I was leaning on my own performance. I was leaning on what I can do, and I was saying, I'm just conforming to the culture. All my friends are doing this, so why is that an issue? In fact, at the end of matric, we actually, before we went on our matric holiday, we had a circle of friends, about 15 people, who had all in that year, pretty miraculously, become Christians. It was like this bit of revival in our circle of friends. But at the end of that year, as they were planning this holiday, we're going to go to Rage and do all these things, this group basically split apart because the one group said, guys, this is just one of those moments in life, and Jesus will understand. <laughs> you only live once. You know, we have to enjoy ourselves. Let's not rock the boat and be like super, you know, crazy Christians. Jesus will have, you know, he'll, he'll give us this one. And then, you know, first year in, in university, then we're going to start passionately serving Jesus. So we're going to go to rage. We're going to enjoy our time there, the goals, the everything, and then we'll get back to faith after that. And something in that circle of friends just said, but this can't be. How can this be Christian faith? And literally, it was torn apart because of those two views. Let me tell you another thing. Money. Do you know that if you are a pastor, unless you are a, you know, some kind of mega church, name it and claim it, you know, prosperity gospel, probably some weird, you know, Nigerian guy phones you every now and then and just a joke. Um, unless that's your deal, then most probably you're never going to be a multimillionaire as a pastor. So can I be honest with you? I have wrestled with this for so many seasons of my life. Saying, God, I know that I know that I know that you've called me to this. But often, I'll just be honest, I know you guys never struggle with this kind of stuff, but for me, often I've looked at neighbors and friends and colleagues. I've looked at people in my family, and I felt, God, like, is this really, is this really your will for my life? I feel like I'm just falling behind. I feel like I'm not getting there. And can I tell you, three years ago when we moved to Pretoria, man, these things come in waves. They test you in different seasons of life again. And when I moved to this city, I'm telling you, it was shockingly in my face again. Because I realized here in Gauteng, we don't, we don't realize it because you swim in this water. But in this city, there is a status symbol, bar none, that tells you your worth, that tells you who you are, that tells you if you are skilled, capable, and if you have a future. And it usually revolves around this one thing, money. What you drive, what you wear, where you live, what school your kids go to, that says everything that anyone ever wants to know about you. And I sit and I say, Jesus, I know that money and sexuality and the things that you've given us, these are good gifts of God. I don't have to shun them. I don't have to have this dual way of living. The world is bad. Heaven is good. No, heaven is coming to this earth to redeem this life in this tangible state. So all these things are good gifts of God, but they are not God. And when I mix those two things up, God is not at the center of my life and money is flowing around it. God is at the center of my life and sexuality will be flowing around it, but sexuality is in the middle of my life. That's where I get my identity. That's how I regulate my emotions. That's how I know that I'm okay, that I'm loved. Money is at the center of my life. That's how I know that I'm worth something. That's how I know that I'm just a bum from some small town in the free state. That's how I know that my parents look at me and say, yes, you've done it. That's how I know that my colleagues and my neighbors appreciate me and they respect me. It's where I find my identity. And the enemy looks and he says, yes, I've got you. Because the very center of your life has become just cultural 
conformity. And I want to say today, the invitation from Jesus is just reject that. Absolutely reject that. Reject that passivity. And how do we do that? I'll just finish off with this one. Is that we lean in to Jesus. The answer is not to say, guys, be better. Come on, seriously. Just reject that passivity just by being a better person. Come on, you guys are shocking. What kind of a shocking church are we? That's not the answer. The answer is leaning in to who he is and what he's done. Verse 12 says, be glad and rejoice. Why? Or it says, blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you. Why? Because of me. Because of me. Not because of a religious system. Not because of performance. He says, because of me. Friends, when I realize that Christianity is about one thing, about Jesus. It's not about trying to be a good person. It's not about dressing a certain way. It's not about speaking a certain language. It's not being a part of an in-club or out-club. It is about one thing, the Christ of the Christianity. That's where it starts and ends. And if I realize I'm not trying in my life to appease some kind of spiritual scoreboard, but I am in a relationship with Jesus, it frees me of so many things. It frees me of the feeling that I have that if I don't suffer, I will not have relationship. I'm suffering for relationship. And it brings me to the place of saying, if I suffer because of relationship, nothing has been lost because it's about Him. It brings me to the place where I don't become bitter in my life. Because guess what, friends? Life will be unfair. Life will be unfair. The Bible says that this world at this point is broken and twisted by sin. And therefore, things at times will just go wrong. They'll fly in our face. And if it becomes about having the kind of life that I want, then I will be so bitter against Jesus. Jesus, I followed you. And look at this. Nothing worked out. But if I realize his promise was never an easy life, he promised us himself. He promised us the peace that transcends this world. He promised the very presence and calling and relationship of God. It frees me. This is actually what happens in Romans 8 verse 35 when it says, So who can separate us from the love of Christ? Then can it be affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, none of that stuff can move an inch of what God has done in my life. There is no cancer or spiritual downturn or death in the family that can take an inch of what God has done for me. And that's so opposite. Luke 15, that parable where Jesus has the two sons and the one runs away and he spends his money and he's between the pigs and he comes back and his elder brother is so angry at the grace of the father over his life. And what does he say to his father angrily? Look, I have been slaving many years for you. I have been slaving. Where's my party? Where's my fattened calf? There's a bitterness. When Jesus is not at the center, it's not about him, it's about trying to win at the scoreboard. God, I'm sacrificing. Where is the result? God, I'm giving. Where is the blessing? But Jesus says, there is something greater. It's me. There is something more beautiful. It's me. There is something more steadfast. It's me. And therefore, when everything is going exactly the way you want or nothing is going the way you want, it will always be about 
just want to end off by saying the Beatitudes, we'll get to looking forward another day. The Beatitudes, as we finish off today, I hope that you see that it is not a list of things that you can accomplish, but it is the invitation of Jesus to say, this is what I have accomplished. Will you accept that? Will you receive that? Will you believe in that? Will you allow that to become the center of your life, to rearrange you, to come and renew you and strengthen you? Because at the end of the day, it's all about him. If I suffer because of Jesus, then I'm even drawn closer to him. And how do I do that in those tough times? It's because of him. Just as we were praying beforehand, Dandelion just shared, or was it Danny that shared, um, or was it Tony that shared, actually? Or was it someone else? It was Tony. And she was just speaking about the fact that if I'm in the water, that I would know that it's God who comes to pick me up. I can even tell you today, I know that you're going through tough things. Come on, just stretch out your hand. But I don't think that's the message of the Beatitudes. The message is, yes, you are in the water at times. Allow him to come and pick you up once again. Allow him to do what he does best. So I'm going to ask us, as the worship team just joins me on stage this morning, can we stand together? I just want to pray just the scripture over you as we're going to finish off just in a moment of proclamation. Isaiah 43 verse 2 says it so beautifully. It says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And yes, the rivers, you are in them, but they will not overwhelm you. And yes, you're in the fire as you walk through it, but you will not be scorched. And the flame will not burn you. And the New Testament version of that, 2 Corinthians 4, 9 says, yes, we are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We're not destroyed. And I want to pray over you today that as you go through things in your life at present and you say, God, I just feel tired. I feel condemned. I'm not experiencing that grace that picks me up. I feel the, I feel the condemnation of having to run and walk hard and earn and achieve. And therefore, God, as I go through difficult things, I feel discouraged. I feel destroyed. I don't feel just, I feel overwhelmed. And I don't want to pep talk you today. I want to give you a moment to say, Jesus, I want to receive, almost like water just washing over me today. Almost like a cloak just being put over my shoulders. Almost like a father just speaking his affirmation over you. Those are powerful things, but they're not things that you do. They are things that you receive, that you believe, that you hold in the the palm of your hand, in your heart. So I'm going to pray over us. And then I'm going to ask you, if that's in your heart today, to say, Jesus, I want to not just believe that, but I want to live that. I want to live from a place where I know that there is nothing that can happen to me. There is nothing that I can face or struggle with. There is nothing that can come against me that can ever rob me of what you have done. And in this next season, God, I want to trust that as I'm in the waters, I will never feel overwhelmed because you are there. As I'm in the fire, God, I will not be burnt up because you are there. Come and stir me for who you are. Come and stir me for what you've done. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for every single person here today who lives under the burden of trying to live up to some standard. I pray for every heart here today who feels overwhelmed by life, 
who feels overwhelmed by their own mistakes and failings. And I also especially pray for any person here who does not yet believe in Jesus. And they sit here, God, and they experience the tug of the Holy Spirit on their life to say, come and lay down your pride, lay down your works, lay down your wisdom, and let me wash you today. Let me free you today. Let me make you the righteousness of God. I pray that as we sing today, God, from this second story of this building, God, as we sing over our city today, may we have the the confidence that our God will make a way. He is faithful. He is there. He is with us. And may we be a people not stretching out our hands to be picked up, but knowing confidently that our Father picks us up, holds us, and carries us to the very end.